This is a story of who we were. How we got here. And where we are going. You've got mail. So join us as we take history off the page. My friends, I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking. To talk with the comparatively few who understand the mechanics of banking, but more particularly with the overwhelming majority of you who use banks for the making of deposits and the drawing of checks. I want to tell you what has been done in the last few days and why it was done and what the next steps are going to be. I recognize that the many proclamations from state capitals and from Washington, the legislation, the treasury regulations and so forth, couched for the most part in banking and legal terms, ought to be explained for the benefit of the average citizen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of History Off the Page. No need to fear, your uh, favorite history podcast was not hijacked by some old man trying to sell you some crypto there. That was actually our nation's 32nd president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, giving the first of his so-called fireside chats in March of 1933. Now, for those of you that don't get the reference, basically Roosevelt was elected during the height of the Great Depression here in the United States. And as he is sworn into office, he faces this kind of banking crisis. Uh, there's a run on several banks. Uh, there are a bunch of banks that are shutting down. And so basically, there's a lot of, of fear. And when you combine fear and banking, that can lead to some very dire consequences. So almost from the moment that he's sworn in, Roosevelt not only faces this kind of massive long-term economic challenge of the Great Depression, but it's almost like he's coming in and there's a wildfire burning through the American economy. And so the antidote to fear, of course, is enlightenment, is someone talking you through the issue, is someone helping to put things into context. Now, as president, in general, before the 1930s, when you had these kind of crises, the answer was, well, I need to get information from the president to the people. And the best way to do that is basically to publish something in a newspaper. Now, of course, if you think about it from a modern perspective, the idea of there's a crisis, let me publish something in the newspaper to deal with a crisis, that seems like an incredibly bad way to try to put out the fire, right? That's going to take too long. You're going to have to draft a statement you got to get the statement to the place that they're physically printing the newspapers. You have to distribute the newspapers. People have to sit there and read what's in the newspaper. And of course, as important as the idea of writing is, one thing that writing really struggles to do is to convey human emotion. It's one thing to read the statements of a politician. It's much more effective to hear them, to see them, right? We need the total audio-visual kind of effect there to have maximum effectiveness. So Roosevelt, instead of relying on newspapers to try to convey his thoughts on the matter, he has at his disposal this relatively new invention called radio. So for the first time in American political history, the people of the United States can listen to the voice of their leader and understand the empathy, understand his desire, get the idea that he is someone who cares about me, who's thinking about this idea of the people and how do I deal with this crisis in banking. And so what we have here is an example of how technology begins to change politics. Think about the pre-radio era. Think about before amplified sound the only time you're ever going to hear the voice of your political leaders is if you are literally in the meeting hall with them, right? If you're in the room. 
if you're in the front of the room, because if you're in the back of the room, a lot of times, if it's a big enough room, you don't hear what they say. So radio begins to change politics and begins to change society in very dramatic ways. Now, in the 1930s, we're still only talking about 60 million Americans. And Roosevelt doesn't do this on a regular basis. He only does it, I believe it's a little over a dozen times during the course of his presidency. But the point, of course, is that it is effective. And not only Roosevelt, but if you think about the history of World War II, imagine if there was no radio involved. Imagine if Winston Churchill had not been able to say his very famous and very passionate speech that we will fight them on the beaches, we shall never surrender. Right, that that magnificent moment where he rallies the British populace, don't give up, even though our ally France has just been totally wiped out in a matter of weeks, we will never surrender. What if that had just been published? You know, would it read the same? Would it, would it invoke the same emotions? And another way to think about this is to play the game in reverse. What if Abraham Lincoln had had access to the radio? What if, as the South is starting to sort of fall apart, as, as South Carolina has already seceded, but there are a number of other states that are kind of on the fence, what if instead of just getting a print out of the first inaugural address, where Lincoln talks about the better angels of our nature, you know, this idea that, well, the bonds of affection that we formed over decades, you know, the, the better angels of our nature will pull them back to us. What if Lincoln's voice could have been heard in Virginia, in Tennessee, in North Carolina? Would the South still have seceded? Would people have rethought the idea of a confederacy? What if, for that matter, we go back even further in time, what if Mad King George III, when the whole brouhaha started with the colonies and fights over taxation, what if instead of royal proclamations and sending over people to represent him, what if the colonists could have actually heard his voice? Not as some aloof monarch, you know, again, who's got some spokesperson or they're just reading the text of a speech, not the kind of jealous lover of the Hamilton musical, but what if we could have heard the emotions of George III and what if he had really cared about the American colonies? What if he had tried to plead on an emotional level to the affections of his subjects? Again, these are ahistorical questions. They're counterfactual. There's no way to know, you know what would have happened. But I think the examples, again, highlight this idea that the new technologies of the 1920s and 30s create massive revolutions in politics, in economics. And they are, again, a part of this broader process of breaking down social and cultural barriers that we've been talking about in our last two episodes. And so today we're going to continue this examination with a focus on technology. We're going to talk about three big inventions that largely defined, in many ways, the 20th century. We already spoke, of course, about the radio. The other two are the airplane and the car. Think about what life would be like if we didn't have airplanes or cars. How dramatically different would your life be? Sometimes I like to ask my students, I say, well, you know, what, what if you didn't have a cell phone? You know, imagine back to the 1980s when you had to memorize people's numbers. Or even later on, you get to put them into your watch and the watch could hold 20 numbers. Wow. Your life would be different, but not dramatically so, right? It's not hard to imagine or remember what life was like in the 1980s. But what if I say we don't have cars? That's pretty dramatic. So that's what we're going to examine again on our episode today on the triumph of technology. So let's start with the most spectacular example of modernity, which uh, I would describe as being the airplane. We're thinking about modernity as the idea of breaking boundaries. What boundary has fascinated human beings more over the course of time than the separation between land and air? Think about for how many centuries, across how many cultures, have human beings dreamed of the idea of flying? Now, obviously, one can go back here to ancient Greek myths, thinking about something like Icarus and Daedalus, and, well, what if we 
glued bird feathers onto our arms and then we managed to fly, but we used wax. We got too close to the sun. Forget about all that for a second. Just think about modern culture. Think about the age of superheroes, right? We love our superheroes. We love Marvel movies now. Some of you love uh, the Justice League. You you love uh, Batman and Superman, DC Comics. Some of you remember uh, the X-Men universe that was very popular in the early 2000s. Think about how many of these superheroes with their superpowers, how many of them can fly? There are some of the obvious ones. Superman, right? It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman, right? Of course, what makes him so super? Well, he can fly. Well, that's pretty crazy. We have people like Iron Man that use technology to do it. We have Captain Marvel. We have Wanda. We have people using kind of magic. Some of the Black Panthers can't really fly on their own, but they are able to kind of jump about. And it's kind of like a mini flight, almost like flight. You know, Hulk can jump pretty far, so it's almost like flying. Captain America also, the kind of extreme jumping ability. Basically, they can almost all fly, right? Thor has his hammer that he can take around. If you go back to the X-Men, Storm, you know, able to move around on lightning. Magneto able to move uh, metal, and so he can kind of fly that way. Jean Grey doing whatever it is that she does and, and can manipulate time and space and things like that. You've got the Silver Surfer. We can go on and on. In fact, we don't even have to focus on the idea of superheroes. One of my son's favorite shows growing up, which uh, I will always have tremendous nostalgia for, is How to Train Your Dragon. Isn't the thrill of How to Train Your Dragon not so much that you're you know, around dragons, it's that you can fly on a dragon. In fact, in the third movie, they figure out a way to fly without the dragon. The dragon gets them up, and then they kind of have gliders. But we're obsessed with flying. Think about a movie like Avatar. Would Avatar be as cool if they couldn't fly on the various kind of creatures? If I haven't convinced you yet of how important the idea of flying is, think about your own lives and your own dreams. Haven't we all had multiple dreams where in the dream we can fly? Whether we're, we have the ability like a bird to fly, whether we're just kind of levitating. It's almost like there is this basic human instinct to fly because we can't actually do it without machines. And magic hammers and, and such. So, of course, for most of human history, this is a myth. This is a dream. This is something that's not real. This first begins to change at the end of the 18th century when the Montgolfier brothers help invent the hot air balloon. And the hot air balloon does allow a modicum of flight, right? We do go up in the air. You do begin to see the world from the perspective of a bird. Of course, the problem with the hot air balloon is you can't really direct it anywhere. You can't really steer it until about 1900 when we start getting into the Zeppelin balloons. There's all these stories, for example, from the wars that are fought in the middle of the 19th century, when they realize, yeah, having a guy up in a balloon can be really useful. Guy up in the balloon can look down, he can see what the other army is doing, see where their troops are, their cannons. Except what happens when the balloon detaches? There's all these accidents where the kind of, you know, the general's up in the balloon in the Civil War, and then the balloon gets uh, kind of detached, and then he kind of floats away, and you hope the winds take you to somewhere in friendly territory, or else the the guy that's up on the balloon is going to get captured. So basically, again, flight is not a realistic thing. It's not something people can control until the start of the 20th century. This is when humans conquer the sky. Of course, today that may not seem so revolutionary, right? We all fly around. Many of you have been on airplanes But think about not just the technological achievement, but think about the cultural reception of the idea of flying. Think about what it must have been like to to go outside and look up in the sky and there's Charles Lindbergh flying over your town. Think about what it must have been like to see some of these early kind of conquerors and adventures who go up into the sky, even though many of them are killed. There's all kinds of accidents. 
it's not just the story of, oh, okay, this is cool, new technology, great. It is, in a larger sense, proof of the power of the human mind. It is proof of the idea of progress. The idea that human beings can identify a problem or a challenge, and if we think about it long enough, if we experiment with it long enough, we can figure it out. We can overcome the great natural or physical barriers that exist in the world, no matter what they are. Nature can be conquered. This is a powerful message. Now, there's a lot of other things that the early kind of history of flight uh, can be used to understand or represent. One of the uh, big things that happens before World War I is you have all this competition between the various countries in Europe. You have a lot of social Darwinism. But there's not actually a lot of war up until August of 1914. So how do we Frenchmen, or we Italians, or we Spaniards, how do we know where we fit? How do we know where we stack up, how we're doing? The technological prowess involved in flight becomes a way to measure our national glory or our national success, or again, to go back to that word, national progress. But again, this is also a powerful response to the idea of pessimism. We live in the 21st century. You know, it's here to 2023. There's a lot of pessimism about the future here in the United States, here in Europe, globally. There are a lot of challenges, political, economic, environmental. And people right now are pessimistic. There's anxiety about the future. How do we overcome pessimism? which was also very prevalent at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. Flight, cars, radio. These become symbols of why modernity is a good thing. Symbols of when breaking boundaries doesn't just elicit anxiety, but elicits confidence. And so again, the story of the first aviators who conquered the sky It's not just the story of people doing a job, people coming up with inventions. It is, in some ways, the equivalent of the early 20th century superhero. These are men and some women who are doing the impossible. And so if they make the impossible possible, what other things can humans achieve? So this is really the true spirit the true importance of the story of flight. Okay, so traditionally, if I say I'm going to talk about the history of flight, the story will begin with Wilbur and Orville Wright. Of course, these are two famous American inventors. They're at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, and they will achieve the world's first flight. If you live in the United States today, if you happen to see someone with a North Carolina license plate, they celebrate that North Carolina is where the first flight happened. It is worth noting that there is a deeper story here, which begins in the late 19th century, as a variety of Europeans began tinkering with engines, hulls, wings, and things like that, basically trying to motorize and to sustain flight. And of course, this is going on in the United States too. The Wright brothers are a part of this sort of larger community that is tinkering with the notion of flight that is in a position where we haven't yet figured it out, but we're pretty darn close to it. So an early example of this comes from Germany, where in 1891, the Lilienthal brothers began experimenting with gliders. And if you have a glider, you may not be able to figure out how to start a flight. But once you get airborne, once you get in motion, you can figure out how to sustain flight. Remember, too, that flying is not just about the the physics of flying. How do we get up in the air? How do we sustain motion? The idea of piloting also plays a pretty huge role in this. There are no precedents before the first flights. There is no understanding of, of the way that you're supposed to move a plane. How do you get out of a dive? Something like that. At any rate, in 1891, Otto Lilienthal became the first man to successfully perform a glider flight just outside of Berlin. Now, these early flights, including the Wright brothers' first flight, are not long flights. Lilienthal's flight was about 25 meters or 80 feet was his first flight. So flying 80 feet 
That's basically about like the 30-yard line to the end zone if you are a football fan. Eventually, they keep doing it. They get up to about 250 meters or 800 feet. So you're talking about eight football field lengths there. That's pretty impressive. But unfortunately, Otto dies in a crash in 1896. Now, Lilienthal's efforts were not broadly known, although he did publish his notes, and they were, of course, read by people like the Wright brothers and this larger community that's interested in flying. A more public event related to the early history of flight becomes the development of the German Zeppelin blimps, which were, of course, led by Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin. Now, Count Zeppelin is an interesting guy. He was basically born in the southwest of Germany in 1838 to a noble family, and he served as an engineer in the Württemberg Army in the days before German unification. During the American Civil War, he actually comes over to the U.S. as an observer. He actually gets to spend time in a balloon here in the United States. One of the things he does is he goes up to Minnesota. He says, hey, I'd like to see those Great Lakes from above, and they put him in a balloon. This is where his first flight was actually, in Minnesota. Of course, right after the end of the American Civil War, we have a couple of wars that take place in Germany in 1866 against Austria, and then a couple years later in 1870 against France. So he has a long distinguished career of being in the military, being around balloons, dealing with this question of, of you know, military logistics and things like that as well. In the early 1890s, Zeppelin basically gets the idea of trying to create a blimp, but not just a balloon, so not just going aloft, but a a balloon that you can steer around and navigate. And so in order to do this, he seizes on the idea of a rigid shape for his airship. So they begin building these large uh, dirigibles, these large balloons or blimps, if you will, but they have a kind of exterior paneling so that they have a rigid shape they're, they're much more aerodynamic than anything like what the Montgolfier brothers were using or people during the Civil War. In 1900, he does his first test flight. And eight years later, the LZ-4 successfully stays aloft for about 24 hours. Now again, put yourself in the mind of the average German as you're seeing these test flights. You're not used to seeing objects in the sky besides birds. The idea that a man-made object is just going to hover there, or it's even going to be motorized and move around for 24 hours, that is breathtaking. That is crazy. Imagine if someone made a hover car, and they just were driving it very slowly through your neighborhood, and you looked up, you saw a hover car. You would stop what you're doing, and you would just look up, and your mouth would probably open like it does in the movies, and you'd go, oh my God, what's going on? And this is essentially what happens in Germany in the first decade of the 20th century. As Zeppelin flies around with these large balloons, people get really excited about it. It seems like a big national achievement. Now, Zeppelin is not the only one working on this concept of the airship. Already by 1851, we have the Australian inventor William Bland, who came up with a design for a steam-powered dirigible. And he even takes it to the 1851 Crystal Palace exhibition in London, and he shows it off there. By the 1860s and 70s, both French and American inventors had also begun to experiment with balloon designs. Of course, the key problem is the idea of propulsion. And so in the 1880s, not uncoincidentally around the time that we start to get the first combustion engines, we also have people designing engines that can be used for a flight. In 1884, for example, the French engineers Charles Renard and Arthur Krebs made the first independent blimp flight. They go 23 minutes in a blimp called the France. But these flights still proved short and difficult. And as we all know, if I say the Zeppelin balloons, if I say the Hindenburg, first thing that comes to your mind is not, oh, glorious travel across the uh, Atlantic Ocean in comfort and luxury. You think about the time that it blew up. So there are a lot of accidents that happened. But the key point, again, with these early blimps, especially the Zeppelin blimps, is that these are public affairs. It's almost like if you remember back in the day when we used to use the space shuttle. The space shuttle was going to take off. They were going to launch it from Cape Canaveral in Florida, 
And all these people would gather outside and watch the rocket take off. It's not just a scientific experiment. It's not just a sort of technocratic thing. It is a public spectacle. And in many ways, what it does is it confirms for Germans, for Frenchmen, for Britons, for other peoples, the idea that science works. Rationalism works. And again, if we believe in it, we can accomplish anything. Now, the early history of flight before World War I doesn't really go that far. Most of these things like the blimps, the zeppelins, they're strange, they're incredible. But as I said, they, they also fail quite a bit. There's a lot of crashing that goes on. And so it's really only World War I that will transform the image of the airplane in the minds of most people from this kind of crazy experimental thing that's out there into something that seems to have some sort of reliability. Again, just to flush out the story a little bit more, some of you are saying, well, wait a minute, you just talked about the early history of flight. You have to talk about the Wright brothers in some detail. You can't just say, oh, well, they were there and, and you know they flew for a little bit and that's it. Let me put a little bit more meat on the bones of the, uh, the story of flight. Uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, Wilbur and Orville Wright, on December 17, 1903, do carry out what is regarded as the world's first real flight. Now, again, this is not a long flight. This is not anything that would have impressed any of us today. But technologically speaking, it's impressive. They, they have an aircraft. It is heavier than air. And they get it aloft. And the first time they do it, it stays aloft for 12 seconds. 12 seconds, and it actually doesn't get more than 10 feet off the ground. So, of course, that doesn't impress us very much. But remember, they don't have any understanding of or any experience with really the, the, the piloting issue, right? How do I, you know, pilot? What happens if there's a gust of wind? What happens if it changes? So they continue kind of flying. They continue toying with it, perfecting techniques and speculations. But other inventors were also on the path, if you will, towards flight, and they're able to do this independently of the Wright brothers, or they modify some of what they were doing based on some of what the Wright brothers succeeded in doing. So another name that Europeans would be perhaps more familiar with that's involved in the early history of flight is a French engineer named Louis Blériot, who began working on airplanes, again, about the beginning of the 20th century. He tinkers with them. He comes up with his own independent design. And in 1908, he becomes the first person to fly across the English Channel. Which, if you think about it, is somewhat dangerous, right? You, you don't have a lot of experience with this. These planes do crash all the time. Sometimes you survive. Sometimes you don't. But once you go across the Channel, if you crash into the water, you might sink and die and, and drown. Uh, so it's, it's fairly daring as these early pilots begin to do these things. When war breaks out in August of 1914, some of the major powers do have airplanes, but nobody's really thought through what we're going to do with these things. Right? The major idea of what we can do with an airplane is, well, we can get up in the sky and we can see what the enemy is doing. Right? We can figure out where his troops are. We can figure out where they're moving to. And that's the early kind of conception of the airplane. Well, basically... As this process starts playing out, of course, both sides have airplanes. The pilots start to see each other. You know, in the early days, they wave at each other. Oh, this is nice. Here you are. You know, I, I respect what you're doing. Kind of like knights in a way. Uh, this kind of new chivalry. Until some jerk decides to bring along a gun. And he tries to shoot at the other person in the observation plane. And so you start getting these kind of air duels. But in some ways, they're kind of silly. You know, I know in the movies, if anyone shoots a gun, it's almost, especially if they're a good guy, it's almost always 100% accurate. If you've ever shot a gun before, it's really a lot harder to hit targets than you might expect. Now, put yourself in an airplane, and you're moving at about 100 miles an hour, and you can move in all different directions, and you're trying to, to you know, as you're flying, trying to time where you're going to shoot in order to hit the other pilot, is not a very easy thing to do. So the, the early air battles are kind of, more symbolic than, than really effective. But by 1915, the Germans, 
who are very, very aggressive in terms of their usage of technology. The idea of World War I, you know, we're going to figure out submarines. We're going to figure out poison gas. We're going to invent so many inventions that change the nature of warfare to try to win the war. Well, one of the things that they do in 1915 is they stick a machine gun on the airplane. What they begin to find, of course, is that the best place to put a machine gun on a World War I biplane is in the center to have to fire it through where the propeller is. But of course, this creates the challenge, right? I don't want to shoot my own propeller or I'm going to crash. So trying to figure out how to sync that is the technological challenge, but the Germans basically figure it out again in 1915. And so as we talked about in our podcast on World War I, you start to get these air battles, the, the guys, the pilots who win the air battles become sort of national heroes. They become known as aces once they get their fifth kill. We talked in that World War I episode in particular about uh, the Red Baron, Manfred von Richthofen. And so basically, over the course of the war, the technology gets better and the things that you can do with an airplane get better. By the time you get to 1917, 1918, we have the first bombers. They're not very effective, very hard to aim. You know, you're, you're almost dropping bombs by hand in the beginning. But the planes are getting larger. Their payload weights are getting heavier. And again, the technical skills of the pilots are getting better. So World War I makes air travel into something that seems reliable. When the war ends, if you are a famous World War I ace and you live through the war, unlike the Red Baron, what do you do? Well, you have to find new challenges, new feats of daring to overcome. And of course, what challenge could be more daring than the idea of crossing the ocean on an airplane? I mean, you can cross the English Channel. That's great. We can fuel up in France and fly to England or vice versa. It's not that big. Today, people have swum across the English Channel. It's not impossible to do. But what about flying across the Atlantic Ocean? In 1919, the pilots John Alcock and Arthur Brown make the first nonstop flight across the Atlantic. Why do they do it? Part of it's because someone offered a prize, right? Whoever's the first person to do this, you get some money. And so, of course, this creates a lot of enthusiasm, this idea of racing and competition. We'll see this later on with cars as well. The idea that competition spurs innovation is one that we often forget in the course of history. But in the history of flight, in the beginning, this is a big part of why people are accepting these challenges because of the financial compensation. Now, you'll notice I just said these two gentlemen made the first transatlantic flight. It is not Charles Lindenberg in 1927. We'll see in a second why he is such a big deal and why his flight is, is so renowned. But to get back to Alcock and Brown's flight, they basically take off from Newfoundland on the afternoon of June 14th. They get aloft and they're flying along. And then things start to go wrong. They had several mechanical failures along the way. Uh, one of the most important is they lost their electric generator, which means that you don't have heat anymore. They lose their radio which if you can imagine as you're trying to fly across the Atlantic Ocean, that might be helpful. Might be nice to, to radio down to ships and figure out where the heck I am. But they actually literally, as they're in these early airplanes, they don't have GPS. They have to kind of navigate just like a sailor would. About 5 p.m. on this initial journey, they hit heavy fog and become disoriented. They actually twice almost crash into the ocean because they can't see. Of course, then it gets dark out, right? These planes are not traveling that fast. Nowadays, you know, jetliners can fly over 600 miles per hour. At this point, they're going about 100 miles per hour. So it takes a lot longer to do this trip than, the, than it does today. At any rate, around 3 a.m., they hit this large snowstorm. And they almost freeze to death because not only do they not have any heat, but remember, their torsos are exposed. They're, they're in these early planes that don't have an enclosed cabin or a pressurized cabin. And so finally, at about 8.40 a.m. the next morning, they land in Galway, Ireland, and they are greeted as national heroes. The two pilots were actually knighted by King George V just a few days after pulling off this feat. 
Now, Alcock and Brown begin this idea of transatlantic travel. Of course, the most famous flight, as I mentioned before, is Charles Lindbergh. Lindbergh goes from New York to Paris in 1927, and this is also because of a competition. Well, okay, you made it from Newfoundland to Ireland, but who really wants to hang out in Newfoundland or rural Ireland? New York to Paris, that's the, that's the money. That's, that's the thing that everybody wants to do. And of course, it's easy to do a transatlantic flight, I guess, if you have two people, because you can take a nap and the other person can fly the plane. What if we flew solo? And so again, you have this competition. It's out there actually for a couple years to try to make, you know, this journey. And actually a number of World War I aces, experienced pilots, people with uh, uh, renowned pedigrees, a lot of financial backing, they try to pull this off and they fail. One of the big challenges, of course, if you're going to fly transatlantic is there's nowhere to stop and get fuel. So these early planes have to load up heavy on fuel, and they're not really used to carrying large weights at this point. So this is one of the reasons why the story of Charles Lindbergh is so impressive, even though someone had already crossed the Atlantic Ocean in a single flight. What's really incredible about this story is Lindbergh is not some World War I ace. He's not some well-financed pilot with long history of experience. He's actually only been flying for about five years when he attempts this feat. And part of the time that he's technically a pilot, he's not actually flying the airplanes. He actually works in like circuses and things like that, air shows, and he works as a a wing walker. So the the plane's flying around and he's going to go out on the wing and stand on the wing as the plane is flying. Which is someone who does not enjoy flight, that, that feels a little bit of nervousness about it. That is crazy. I cannot imagine being a wing walker. He also does some parachuting, which, as you can imagine, come in handy. Works as an air mechanic, which, if you're going to fly across the Atlantic solo, is a very good idea. So in 1927, Lindbergh decides, I'm going to pull this off. He gets some backing from some locals. He's got some flight time experience. Uh, One of the things he did was actually deliver mail by air. And so he's going to try this dramatic flight. He departs the U.S. at about 8 a.m. Eastern time. He flies at about 500 feet over the U.S. mainland. So this is not like the modern air, you know, pressurized cabin, commercially go up in the air, you're above the clouds. Okay, time to put on a movie or fall asleep. He's flying in a way that you can see his plane very clearly and he can see all the people on the ground. Now, one of the uh, other interesting things about this story is As you can imagine, the night before, he's a little nervous, and he doesn't sleep very well. You know, if you've ever had a kind of big test that's coming the next day, a big kind of presentation to give, a lot of times you don't sleep well the night before. And certainly he doesn't sleep well the night before. So he only gets a couple hours sleep, only now he's going to fly solo across the Atlantic, and you can't really fall asleep while you're solo piloting a plane across the Atlantic Ocean. A couple hours into the flight, his eyes start drooping. And he's like, oh, no, I'm falling asleep, and I still have, like, 30 hours to go on this flight. What can I do? So he actually starts flying about 10 feet over the waves to just try to keep his mind awake. Just going over the Atlantic Ocean. Let me fly as close to the sea as possible. Sounds kind of crazy to us. Later on, he hits some cloud cover. He goes up to about 10,000 feet. Of course, the night is very short if you're flying from the U.S. to Europe. And so about 2.33 a.m., the, the sun starts to break, or it's false dawn and then full dawn. He's super tired. He starts hallucinating, which again, you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. You're flying an airplane solo. Not a good time to have hallucinations. He starts doing that mini sleep thing. If you've ever been driving and you start to get tired and your eyes close and you actually fall asleep for like a couple seconds, and then you wake up, right? You get that jolt of energy. Oh, well, Lindbergh's doing this not just while he's driving a car, which is dangerous enough. He's literally flying by himself across the Atlantic Ocean, and he's having these little five or six second mini sleeps. In the end, by the time of the second night, he makes it to Paris, which by the way, it's dark out, and his map doesn't actually have the airfield marked on it. So he kind of has to circle around, fly around, see, okay, 
Where is the actual landing field? Can you imagine? You've just flown across the Atlantic Ocean. You've been flying for 30 hours plus, and now you have to try to figure out where is the landing site? So he does find it. He lands, and he is greeted by 150,000 people. Basically, they're able to track Lindbergh as he starts to fly across various parts of Ireland, England, France. So they get an idea of when he's going to be there. And again, he's greeted by this masses of crowds. This isn't landing in, in some rural part of Ireland like the Ring of Kerry. This is landing in Paris or outside of Paris where there are hundreds of thousands of people. Lindbergh's flight is important in the history of aviation, not just for the technical side of things, which, as I mentioned, in some ways had already been done before, maybe not quite as dramatically, but you know, the basic idea of crossing the ocean had been done before. But what he does is electric. It brings star power. It brings fame. Again, this isn't something that only a handful of people see. This is going from one of the sort of media capitals of the world to another media capital of the world and being bathed in all the photography and the reporters and the lights and the fanfare. And so Lindbergh helps popularize air travel. Look what amazing things we can do. Now, another American that we should mention if we're talking about the history of early flight is Amelia Earhart. Earhart is a Midwesterner. She moves around various parts of the Midwest with her family. And of course, she becomes one of the world's first female pilots. She's not the first, but she's one of the world's first female pilots. And she also becomes a media darling. Basically, her story is also very interesting. She um, graduates from high school. She uh, goes up to Canada, which is in the middle of World War I. She decides to start working as a nurse. When the war ends, she has to deal with a flu pandemic. She actually gets it herself, I believe, at one point and is, is uh, really like in, in very difficult straits. She actually had like a sinus condition for quite a while uh, where she had to have an operation on her, on her uh, sinuses. You can imagine you're flying, you're going up and down a lot. What are you going to do about your sinuses? You don't want blocked sinuses or sinus issues. That's, that's really important. At any rate, the most important moment of Amelia Earhart's life comes in 1920 when she basically is at the equivalent of a fair or an air show and she pays $10 for a 10-minute flight. She loves it, as you might expect. She signs up for flying lessons. And in 1922, she became only the 16th woman in U.S. history to be issued a flying license. She continues flying for the next couple years, basically doing it more as a side hustle. And then she is approached in the wake of Lindbergh's feet by a group of Americans who want to create a prize for the first woman to fly across the Atlantic. Now, there is some sexism in this. If I say who's the first woman to fly across the Atlantic, you all probably hear that as the first woman to pilot an airplane across the Atlantic. Right, people aren't impressed that Charles Lindbergh physically went across the Atlantic. They're impressed that he piloted his airplane across the Atlantic. And so she basically is a part of this team in 1932 that does it, but she's basically a passenger. So she doesn't really get to fully experience the kind of thrill or the amazingness of, of piloting the aircraft. But for the public, both in the United States and in Europe, that doesn't matter. The fact that she is a flyer, that she is a woman, that she is breaking not just sort of, again, these physical boundaries between land and air, but she is breaking the boundaries of gender and expectations. And we'll talk about this more in our next episode about the new woman. But Earhart becomes a massive celebrity. Over the five years between 1932 and 1937, she participates in not just as a passenger, but as the pilot, a number of kind of daring flights. You know, we're going to try to cross this territory solo. We're going to cross this territory as part of a team. She basically dies, we think, in 1937. She's basically flying across the South Pacific. Uh, there were some stops that they, they made for uh, refueling. And so basically she gets close to one and then never actually shows up for it. And so the hypothesis is that she and her co-pilot probably crashed into the sea. In the 1970s, there's some people that kind of argue, well, maybe she survived that. Maybe she made it to some remote atoll. 
Who knows? Maybe one day they'll find her body. Maybe they won't. The key thing for our purposes, though, is that she again glamorizes flight. She popularizes flight. And despite her disappearance, she actually makes people feel that it's a more reliable invention than they did, obviously, during World War I or beforehand. Now, as these various flyers continue to pull off, again, these daring feats, the perception of air travel becomes, as I said, increasingly reliable. In the United States, it quickly established its utility by becoming a way of transporting mail. Passenger service, as we'll talk about in just a second, is not very effective, really even up until the 1930s. Passenger service, you're not going to be able to have a lot of people on the planes like you do the modern jumbo jet. The prices are exorbitant. The quality of the travel, again, we'll get to this in a second, is not very good. So the way that you make money with it, the reason to support early air travel, is actually in the United States, you can carry mail with it. The United States has these big, vast expanses, especially in the early 1900s. How do we get the mail there? So that's actually the, the, the story of the growth of the American air industry starts actually with the ability to deliver the mail and less the ability to have passengers. Nevertheless, we do have some initial efforts to create air travel for passengers, even going back to the pre-World War I era. In 1909, for example, in Germany, we have the foundation of the Deutsche Luftschiffsfahrtsaktiengesellschaft. That sounds like a mouthful. Uh, I speak German, and that's <laughs> difficult to roll through all that. They use the abbreviation DELAG. Now, DELAG is not sending people around on commercial aircraft just yet. What they're using is Zeppelins, and the first official Zeppelin flight happens in 1910. Of course, as we said, this is not the most reliable form of travel in this time period. The uh, the first DELAG flight that Zeppelin actually crashes a couple months later. But they start building a fleet, and by 1914, Dalek had carried over 1,500 passengers on Zeppelin flights. Now, unfortunately for this company, World War I comes along, the military seizes a lot of important and valuable assets. You don't have as much leisure travel because you're in kind of the situation of a war. And so the German military basically takes over the Zeppelins, turns them into bombers, and uses them against London. Once the war is over, the victorious Entente powers say, well, you turn these into bombers, that's a problem. Germany, you can't have any Zeppelins anymore. And so it's only later on that those restrictions are dropped and that the impetus for commercial service, in the meantime, will pass on to airplanes. In 1919, for example we have the foundation of some of the world's first major airlines. KLM, Avianca, Qantas. And there is a French-Romanian kind of combination called franco Ruin, which is founded in 1920. We could also mention Czech Airlines in 1923. Now, these early air services are, as you might imagine, not very profitable. In fact, the only reason that they're able to exist is they get about 80% of their revenue from government subsidies. Early air travel is a mess. It is not profitable. But governments basically prop it up because they realize in the long run, whether you're talking about economics, whether you're talking about the military value, having a workable air industry is going to be pretty important for the future. After a couple of years of providing these subsidies, one of the things that becomes very obvious to many of the European governments is we don't want a lot of competition in the air industry. It's not financially viable. And so what they begin to do is to force the merger of various small regional airlines. If you're talking about flight, I mentioned that I'm, by training a German historian, I spent a lot of time in Germany. When I think about flying to Europe, anytime I can fly in Lufthansa, I do it. I love Lufthansa. It's my favorite airline. And uh, I'm not getting paid to, uh, to say that. Although if you're from Lufthansa and you hear this podcast and you want to throw me a little change, that would be fantastic. I'm kidding, of course. 
At any rate, Lufthansa comes from the forced merger of airlines in 1926 in Weimar, Germany, right? We've got to keep this industry alive. What's the best way to do it? Consolidate all the routes, consolidate all the airlines, get rid of competition because when the economics are such that it's not viable, competition is actually going to make things worse. The French follow suit in 1933. They found Air France, or they combine existing airlines into what becomes known as Air France. Now, again, part of the reason that air travel is not profitable is because it's expensive. But it's also extremely unpleasant. Of course, this is uh, 2023. If I said to most of you who've been on airlines, you've been on flights, what do you think of the experience of, of air travel? Those of you that remember the glory days in the 1990s when you got to walk to the gate with your family, you got free um, peanuts, sometimes you could get playing cards, free soda, you could sit where you wanted to, there were no charges for any of the bags that you took unless you you know, had five bags and you went over a certain weight or something crazy. Those were the golden days of air travel, right? Today, we're all crammed together like sardines. You have to pay for everything. It's all these upcharges. We like to complain about flying. But I think if you look in perspective historically, all of us would take this and say, well, this is great. I'm, I'm very happy with it. In the 1920s, we don't have pressurized cabins yet. In the 1920s, you have to fly at a low altitude, which means that you will be affected by the wind. Right Today, there, there is wind if you go up high enough, right? Airplanes usually fly at like 29,000, 30,000 feet. And they do that for a variety of reasons. One is there's less wind up there. And then, of course, there's also less atmosphere up there. So there's less drag on the plane, right? So it's going to be a smoother ride, generally speaking. But flying at low altitude, the planes are going to get rocked around quite a bit. If you go and watch movies, especially about like D-Day, where the gliders are coming in, it's not a smooth ride as they fly over uh, France, right? It's, it's very bumpy, uh, very rough, and that's because they're flying at low altitude. Now, another thing that we tend not to think about is the noise. Today, unless you're sitting right by the engine in an airplane, usually, I mean, it gets loud, but it's not terrible. You can still have a conversation with someone. But in the 1920s, we're talking about 120 decibels in the cabin. It is like saying you are going to be at a rock concert in the air sitting next to the speakers. In fact, things are so bad on these early flights, the equivalent of the flight attendants, which we'll get to in a minute, they use a megaphone to try to communicate, right? They've got the old kind of cone. We've got to call through the cone so we can get to everybody, get the information out that we need to communicate. Early air travel is rough. In fact, it's so rough that most people get airsick along the way. What are we going to do about that? Well, there is a uh, woman from Iowa named Ellen Church. Ellen wanted to be a pilot, but of course there are, despite the success of someone like Amelia Earhart, there are a lot of gender barriers to overcome, so she can't do that. She winds up becoming a nurse, and she gets the brilliant idea of saying, hey, maybe if air travel is so uncomfortable, maybe if all these people are in the back of the airplane, they're all throwing up, maybe they would feel better about it if they had a nurse that was there. So she actually writes to Boeing, and says, hey, we should put nurses on planes to help the passengers. And Boeing agrees and you have the birth of the flight attendant. Why were so many flight attendants, historically speaking, women? Until really about the 1980s, 1990s. Right? We used to call them stewardesses. Well, it's because they were originally nurses. And why were women nurses? Because women are supposed to be caring and nurturing. And so the position of nurse was defined as something that was feminine. It was gendered and effeminate because it was the idea that you're caring for someone else, just like uh, mom is supposed to do. So early flying, not good. Nevertheless, people are not so interested in the experience of flight 
as they are in the possibilities of it, in the images of it. To fly is to be futuristic. And so airlines are actually phenomenally successful, not in selling what the actual experience of flight is, but in selling the idea of flight. If you look at marketing material from the era, you look at the posters, which are fantastic. Airline posters promote flight as symbols of wealth and luxury. And so over the course of the 1920s and 30s, the airline industry grows tremendously. In the United States in 1929, so right on the eve of the Great Depression, when you still have the Roaring Twenties going on, a lot of money flowing around, there are about 6,000 passengers that are flown nationwide. Five years later, by 1934, we are talking about 450,000 passengers. By 1938, it's up to 1.2 million passengers. So again, flying becomes seen as cool, luxurious, status-affirming, and people want to do it more and more, despite the fact that, again, initially, it was a pretty rough experience. To give you another idea of this, we go back to our European context. In 1932, this German politician named Adolf Hitler was involved in a presidential election. To make himself seem more futuristic, more kind of the man of the hour, more kind of charismatic and dynamic and heroic, he sets up a deal with Lufthansa where they basically say, here's a plane, you can do whatever you want with it during the 1932 presidential election. And people embrace it. People say, wow, look at this Hitler guy. He is futuristic. He is modern. And some become open to other aspects of his political program. Another example of the importance of flight for the early Nazi party, it is not a coincidence that one of Hitler's chief lieutenants is this guy named Hermann Goering. Now, when most of us think about Hermann Goering, we think about this kind of fat, toady-looking guy who, uh, you know, he's the head of the Luftwaffe during World War II, but the Luftwaffe doesn't do very well, especially after like 1941, 42, uh, especially as you get to the end of the war, he keeps saying, oh, we'll do things, we'll, we'll supply Stalingrad despite its encirclement. No, that doesn't work. We'll defeat the, uh, the landers at the D-Day landings. No, that doesn't work. But the young Hermann Goring is a star, is extraordinarily popular. He emerges from World War I as one of the most important surviving flying aces. He was at one point the commander of the famous Flying Circus Squadron. And so basically he is someone endowed with a lot of celebrity status in Germany in the 1920s and 30s. Being a pilot, Hitler associating himself with airplanes, this stamps in the eyes of many Germans the Nazi party as something that is not reactionary, but that is modern. And modern means that you can use science and technology to solve the problems of the present. More broadly speaking, we can say the act of flying, whether as an adventurous pilot, as a fighter pilot, as an ace, as a wealthy traveler, flight is seen as something that is, again, deeply modern. Indeed, futuristic. It was to be one with the spirit of the times, to be a heroic breaker of boundaries. Okay, so it seems I got a little bit carried away when originally recording this episode, because when everything was said and done, it actually wound up being over two hours. And as much as I love podcasting and as much as I love listening to podcasts, I can imagine that for some of you, that's probably a little bit on the long side. So for practical purposes, I'm going to go ahead and cut the episode in half and end it here. To hear more about the triumph of technology in the 1920s, and specifically to hear about the rise of the automobile and the radio, as I promised, please check out the second half of the episode, which will be posted simultaneously on the streaming service of your choice. That's all for now. Hope you've enjoyed listening, and we hope to see you on the other side as we take history off the page.